Good morning. Anyone interested in some Endgame spoilers? No. Oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. I've only seen it three times in three days. So here's what I will tell you, though. It's better the second time. It's even better the third time. Yep, it really is. Now, why do I bring that up? Be because it's part, yeah, because I have stock in Marvel. No, I don't. Part of, I wish, part of... Uh, one of the reasons we read the passage before we jump into the text is because there's something about knowing where we're going that allows us to have a little bit more comfort. And that's kind of what happened with that movie. The first time I saw it, I was on edge the entire time. I, it's three hours, and I had to go to the restroom really bad. I mean, it was rough. And there's something about reading the text and knowing where we're going and then picking it apart, which we're going to do today. I am so, so excited to be back in the book of John. Anyone know when we started it? February of 2018. Right? Now, just for my own sake, who was here in February of 2018? Okay, a decent amount of us. All right, that's cool. I still feel like we have some work to do because we haven't been in the text in quite a while. The book of John is the fourth gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They were seen together. So you see similar stories from different points of view from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have John. John's kind of the weird cousin, almost, because his gospel's different. His gospel has some specific things that he saw that Matthew didn't see, that Mark and Luke didn't hear about. And so it's really interesting as we jump into the gospel of John. It's known, John is known as the disciple of love. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he named himself that because he got his identity from the fact that Christ loved him. And then we have this gospel that's just a little bit different, and some people call it the Gnostic gospel. Gnosticism was a cult in the time that unfortunately has spread to other types of cults today, but it was about secret knowledge. It was about knowing things that, that, other, that scripture couldn't tell you. There, there was more information to be known. And John spoke against that. He talked about what the purpose of what he was doing was, which was to make known that Jesus was the Christ, that you could have life in his name. And John also made very clear that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And the purpose of this book was that you could know Jesus personally. So I'm going to take you back to a verse that we probably won't go to again for a while, but it, it's the culmination of the entire book of John. It's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John's writing, and towards the end of his letter, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, check it out, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. So as we jump back into this book that is written by the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, I want to remind you that the entire book of the Bible really is to point you towards the fact you can find life in Jesus' name that you don't find life in what you do, you don't find life in cleaning yourself up, you can't find life in mysticism, you find life in Jesus Christ. So here we go, John chapter seven, verse one, buckle up, buttercup, let's go. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go back into Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna get through two words. After this. <laughs> so, we haven't been in the book of John for about six months. 
just so you guys know. So if you've come in the past six months, you're like, I don't even know we're going through John. Yeah, we're going through John, and we plan in 2030 to finish this bad boy. (laughs) But we haven't been in the book of John for six months. And what's interesting is that after this is pointing back to John chapter 6, and what's happened chronologically from John chapter 6 going into John chapter 7 is, you ready? It's been six months. It's like we planned it, and we did not. I'm just going to be honest about that. It just worked out really well. And Jesus, in these six months of, of in between the end of John chapter 6, where Jesus speaks some harsh truth, and if you guys remember, in, at the end of John chapter 6, he's, the disciples, many of the disciples, desert him. And then he goes to the, his disciples, the ones that had been walking with him, and he goes, are you guys going to go too? And Peter, oh, Peter, Ready, shoot, aim. Peter decides, hey, to whom would we go, he says to Jesus. To whom would we go? But there's been six months. And it's not like nothing happened. We have Mark. We have Matthew. We have Luke. And so we know that there were other miracles and things that happened in these six months. But this was the end of his public ministry at the end of six, going into seven. He didn't do anything in a public setting. So we see Jesus in these six months, not doing the public things that he was. What did he do? He invested in his disciples for six months. That'll preach. That'll definitely preach here. He spent six months making sure that they were going to be prepared for what was to come, and they didn't know what was to come but he was preparing them to be the leaders of the early church. So we see Jesus investing primarily in the disciples. He's developing them in these six months. He's training them. He's equipping them. Listen, Jesus is the worst mega church pastor ever. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with mega churches. There are some really great mega churches that started out small, probably started in someone's garage or living room, and then invested in their people, and by God's grace alone, it became scalable. So now that they have thousands of people, they're still doing that. But Jesus was not trying to just gather a crowd. Every time he gathered a crowd, he'd say something that I'm sure his disciples were like, seriously, Jesus, they're not coming back. That's probably how the staff feels about me. (laughs) But I'm just reading the word. And Jesus modeled and discipled his followers as his church growth model. But Jesus modeled and did discipleship specifically as his plan A to build his church. He knew it would take committed followers of his who were equipped to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, to follow him, to seek and save what was lost. So he invested in his disciples. He made time for them. He gave them object lessons that would equip and prepare the disciples for what was to come, even though they didn't know what was to come. So after this, six months, and we see this private time of investment, we see Jesus taking baby steps in chapter 7 to jump back into the public ministry, but going back into the public eye, especially in Judea, where there was religious leader, leaders who wanted Jesus dead because they believed he was blasphemous. They thought it was blasphemy that he claimed he and the Father were one. So John chapter 7, verse 2, we got through one verse. We're doing great so far. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near. So just so you know, we left off 
in chapter 6 around the Passover, which is usually around April. And now we're at the Jewish Festival of Tabernacles, which usually took place in October. And John wrote nothing in these many months since his purpose was not to present an exhaustive chronological explanation of everything Jesus ever did, but to portray him as the Messiah and the Son of God and show how men and women reacted to him. But we do have the Gospels of Matthew, we have the Gospels of Mark, we have the Gospels of Luke, and we have some theories to what happened chronologically in these six months. So hear me, here's what we came up with. Jesus, in those six months, taught his disciples specifically about inner purity. He exercised a demon out of a possessed girl. He healed many other people. He fed 4,000. Remember that one, Jewish Happy Meal? Jesus warns again against false teaching, but specifically of the Pharisees, the religious folk. Jesus restores the sight of a blind man. Peter calls Jesus the Christ, Matthew 16. Jesus predicts his death the first and second times. Jesus is transfigured on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're there. The disciples argue about who is the greatest among them. Jesus teaches the parable of the lost sheep. He warns against temptation, and he teaches his followers how to handle sin when you see another brother or sister in sin, Matthew 18. And John is silent on all of that. But he's not so much silent as he is in emphasizing the fact that the disciples could know that Jesus is the Messiah he is the anointed one. He is God's one and only son. And that was what John was specifically trying to make known. Verse 3. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. In some translations, the, the fun ones that you have to read a little bit more intently, it says the brethren. It doesn't say brothers. It says brethren, which also could inform include other family members and cousins. But for today's sake, we're looking at those who were included in Jesus's brothers. There was James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And these, according to the gospel writers, did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, either spiritually or politically. Again, could you imagine your sibling being God? Yeah, no. So what they are communicating as they're talking to Jesus is they're saying, Jesus, why don't you, and we don't know tone, and I wish we did, but why don't you, Jesus, go show off to more, the more corporate example of your disciples, the people that have popular opinion about, the, about you. So this was more of a universal understanding of discipleship. These weren't disciples of Jesus as much as these were people that just didn't scoff at his name those who are part of the popular opinion of who Jesus is, those who like Jesus, but maybe don't love him. So what the brothers are saying, they're saying, show off Jesus, so maybe you'll get more followers on social media. Do these big things so more people will know who you are and pay attention to you. And again, we don't know tone, but they either wanted Jesus, they wanted to tease Jesus, which is what brothers do, right, Jordan? Or they wanted them to be more influential, or they wanted him to be to prove himself because popular opinion, if, if a lot of people believe that Jesus was the Messiah, maybe then the brothers would listen to what the people were saying about him. They weren't really, really willing to embrace that he was the Lord. 
one of the most engaging and well-known theological explanations of who Jesus is and isn't is from a guy named C.S. Lewis. So now we can check the box that this is a real sermon because we have a dead guy who's about to quote something. And he is known for what we're about to read, but the theological idea of what he's about to say, which many of you know, came 100 years prior from a teacher of the Bible named John Duncan, and then it was even simplified more a few years later by another author named Watchman Nee. But for today's sake, let's look at C.S. Lewis's description in the book called Mere Christianity. Anyone ever read Mere Christianity? It like comes in a double pack with your Bible. I mean, seriously. (laughs) So here's what he says. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, pages 55 and 56. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So, there were some arguments against what he said in Mere Christianity. There were arguments against the idea, as C.S. Lewis is saying, well, he was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. He actually, the thing that people started to question was, maybe he was a liar, maybe he was a lunatic, maybe he was a legend, or maybe he was Lord. And the thing about Jesus is that either he is a liar or a lunatic, or maybe that those things written about him in the Bible are legend. And I think some of us struggle with this. I think some of us think, well, I, I come and I put in my time and I do my Jesus thing and I'm, I'm for this, but I'm not really sure if this is true. I'm pretty sure it is, but I wouldn't take my word for it only. I would dive into this. I would read this. I would look at the worldview that this gives and compare it to the worldview that this world has and realize that one just does not consistently make any sense. But God's word does. And I stand on what he says about himself. And I don't believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. I believe the Bible's true because Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible does the best job of describing why. The thing about Jesus is the people were questioning what he was. And so when people started to question if he was a liar, a lunatic, or legend, or Lord, C.S. Lewis goes on, he writes an essay a few years later, and it's called this, What We Are to Make of Jesus. And one of the things he said was, his existence produced three things throughout scripture, but never does a gospel writer conclude any reactions but these three to him. You ready? Here they are. Hatred, terror, or adoration. If you read the scriptures, you see someone that either hates him, is terrorized by him, has terror, is fearful of him, or adoration, worship. We see in the religious that there was a hate for Jesus because he did not come in the way that they wanted their savior. 
They wanted one that they could control or use to their own advantage. There was also terror. You know what's interesting about this? We said this before, but one of the only entities in Scripture that really understood who Jesus was were the demons. Because they ran away scared because they knew how powerful Jesus' name is, let alone his person. And yet these demons never had what the third camp had, which makes all the difference. They had adoration. They had worship. I was watching a documentary on the gospel. It's so good. And as I was watching it, one of the things that it said in it was, there's a, J.D. Greer is a pastor, and he said, you know, there's a difference between a lecture, a motivational talk, and a sermon. In a lecture, the whole goal is information. We just want to inform you. Well, I don't do lectures. I hated lectures in school. And then there's the motivational speech, which, honestly, you can watch a guy online right now if you want a motivational speech without any Jesus. I mean Joel Osteen. But a sermon? So, so you've, got, you've got the lecture that's information, you've got the motivational speech, which is to get you to do something, and then you've got the third one, which is a sermon. You know what a sermon's for? A sermon's to help you worship. I'm always blown away. I didn't know why I was blown away, but every time I preach, I always expect everyone to leave, to be totally honest. And then one of the reasons we do worship afterwards is just so, you know, people stay. That was kind of like the idea. <laughs> but I got to be real and honest with you guys. After we open a text and allow the word of God to speak to us, and I watch some of you worship that wanted nothing to do with Jesus years ago. It is one of the most beautiful things not to be your pastor and see that, but to be a fellow brother in the faith. So we see in the religious that there was this hate. We see in the, in, uh, for the demons there was this fear. We see in those who were following him in adoration. And those who truly followed him, they had worshipful responses to Jesus as the Messiah. They may have started out not believing or understanding who he truly was and is, but think about James. You've got James, Jesus' half-brother, who did not trust that the Lord during Jesus' 33 years of life was God. They did not believe that Jesus, his own brother, was God. And then he writes an epistle named, very good, four of you are listening. He writes an epistle named James, which is as the head elder to the early church in Jerusalem. And here's how he starts it. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, the brother of Jesus. You ready? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a cuss word. That is worship. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Oh, James isn't enough for you? How about Jude? Another one of his brothers. Hey, Jude. Here's what it says. Jude chapter 1, Jude, he, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. What would your sibling have to do to convince you that they were God? These are the greetings that Jesus' own brothers eventually came to believe and live for and die trusting that Jesus is God. You want to know why? It's a real simple secret. You ready? Because Easter stuck. You guys know what I'm talking about? Easter stuck. The resurrection of Jesus, he came back to life, and all of a sudden, the resurrection changed everything for these men who once were non-believers. Verse 4. 
No one who wants, the brothers are saying this, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Let me paraphrase. Since you seem to be a big deal, why don't you make yourself a bigger deal? Jesus' own brothers were thinking in the physical, and Jesus had come and taught about the spiritual, the spiritual realm, the perspective that one cannot see without the Holy Spirit illuminating and revealing and making us aware of the kingdom of God. This is the consistency of the book of John. The consistency of the book of John is that Jesus has these interactions with people and they ask physical questions and he gives spiritual answers. It's like talking to Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy. Way too literal, I had no idea what he was talking about. And people hear the literal and miss the meaning in which Jesus is communicating. So they say, show yourself to the world, make your influence greater. And this seems to be a push from the brothers because if he is the Messiah, why not have more people jump onto the bandwagon? So <clears throat> I want to be clear, and I'm going to walk away from the pulpit for a moment. I want to be clear about what we do here at COV. Here's what we do. We make known that Jesus is the Christ. That's what we do. What's your mission statement? Jesus. That's our mission. We do, we want to make known that Jesus is the Christ. We want to make much of Jesus. But I hope you hear my heart in what I'm about to say, because this is going to sound pretty critical. There's been this attractional movement that even though I believe it was started with the best of intentions, like if Jesus is the Messiah, everyone ought to know, so go show yourself. And yes, I still believe that everyone ought to know but the function in which that takes place seems to have been lost in thousands of years of attempting to do things that work and are effective. I believe that evangelism that makes the messengers, the heroes, misses the entire point of the scriptures. So you don't exalt me. You don't exalt Mike. You don't exalt people that are growing within this, this community in such a way. We don't, we don't exalt Malik. We're not growing into Malik's, or Malik's. We don't, we're not growing into Malik's likeness. We're growing into Christ's likeness. And that's a very good thing that he is and that I am and that many of you are as we've repented, trusted the Lord, and followed him. But the point is not man. The point is Jesus. He is the point, and we get to be a part of what he is doing to restore and reconcile spiritually dead people back to him. And a movement that makes anyone but our triune God the hero misses the entirety of the mission of the, in the first place. So as a church, we want to give people an opportunity to grow. We want to give people an opportunity to know Jesus. Even in our Sunday morning gatherings, but listen, the church is not the steeple, it's the people. Asgard is not a place, it's a people. That's not a spoiler. That was in Ragnarok. You should have seen that. And church is not Sundays, okay? Like, I almost want you to write this down somewhere. Church is not Sundays. In fact, church today is the celebration of the church existing all week. That's what we're doing here today. And as the church serves and evangelizes and disciples those in our sphere of influence, when it comes to Sundays, I want us to create an environment that removes distractions, but sometimes what is created to make people more comfortable ends up becoming the distraction from the very thing we're trying to point people to. 
I have no problem with mailers. I have no problem with advertising. I think marketing, a good thing for products that are useful is a really good thing. But hear me, Jesus is not a product. He is a king. And we worship the king, letting others know that there is a kingdom that they can be adopted into by the king who is a good, good father. Last week, we celebrated Easter the most important event in all of history where Jesus in mankind's eyes went from either uh, in their context when, when it happened, where in mankind's eyes, he was in that moment no longer just a great teacher, no longer just a good man, and no longer a blasphemer because he proved that he was the Lord because God raised his only son from the dead. We had pretty full worship services. I don't know if you guys noticed that. You're like, oh, I can't park where I want. I can't sit in my pew. It's not your pew. We had a lot of visitors. We had a lot of guests, but we did not mail out or spend a cent on advertising. You know why? Because God's going to bring who God's going to bring. And I'm not against mailers. I'm not against those things. But people came because they lived in the neighborhood. Or more importantly, they came because you brought them. They were connected to you in some way. You personally invited them, and then you sat with them. And honestly, there is no better marketing than testifying to a changed life and an invitation. That's the best marketing we can have as followers of Jesus. I heard stories of people for the first time believing the resurrection. I talked to people who fell more in love with Jesus. I talked to people who were struck by the community and wanted to be a part of it. And here is what I know. Jesus will build his church. In these six months that we hear John be quiet, Matthew 16 takes place. And in Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples and he's talking to them, he's investing in them, and he asks this question. He never asks a question out of ignorance. He always asks a question to expose something in the hearer's heart. But he asks this question. He says, who do people say that I am? And Peter, oh, Peter, starts to share about how people think he's a prophet. And so then Jesus asked this question, Matthew 16, verse 15. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I want that to stick. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. <laughs> Check this out. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. All right, I'm going to let that stick for a second, because I could do an entire sermon just on that, and I will. But not today. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hear me, what, what do gates do? They keep people out, and Jesus was not kept out. He came in and set the captives free. That is our Lord. And he wins. I read ahead. We get to be a part of his plan A as he builds his church. Jesus doesn't need your help. Okay? Like, I know that's not popular. Jesus doesn't need your help. He chooses to equip you to be his conduit of grace to a broken world who is in need of grace and hope. So, 
I didn't make the meme. I didn't plan to say the meme first service, but I'm going to say it again this service because it's stuck for a lot of people. This past week, I was spending time with one of my mentors. We're having a conversation, and he brought up this meme. And some of you have probably seen it. Uh, let, me, let me back up. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? Okay, a good amount of you. It came out, you know, decades. Some of you weren't alive, which is super cute. Uh, and this movie came out a couple decades ago, and it was really good, and it was done by Mel Gibson, who, you know, whatever you've seen, eh, uh, but at least Mel was in the Lethal Weapon movies, and I love those movies, so there. And, and Mel was a Roman Catholic, and he created this movie about Jesus's eventual death on the cross, and theologically, it was kind of off, all right? You can tell him I said that. But the moments where Jesus got beat, the 39 lashings that we know in Scripture took place, like, that's still singed in my mind of what he went through, and I'm sure it is for many of you. When he went to the cross and they put the nails through his wrists and the nails through his ankles and he hung on the cross, you probably remember how bloody he was. So there's this meme, and it's a picture of Mel Gibson dressed like me, essentially, and he's next to Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in the movie, and Jim Caviezel is fully bloody, fully makeup out after being beaten and put on the cross in the movie. And the meme that my mentor said was, there's a different, a different meme, but what he said is, I look at that picture and my caption would be me trying to tell Jesus all that I did for him. He doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. And God is building this church of people who confess that Jesus is the Messiah to confess this means that you've not put your hope in Jesus plus anything. Do you hear me? Your hope is not in Jesus and I'll cover all my bases with a little bit of Buddha. No. That's like I'm talking to my kids. No. <laughs> your hope, your rock, your king, your salvation comes through a person, not a product, and that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus will build his church through the confession that he is the Christ by the people worshiping and trusting him. So you want to know our church growth strategy? Here it is. We will exalt Jesus and God will grow his people. That's our church growth strategy. Sorry, Stadia. And that's why we offer all that we do in community groups and even tonight in the COV after party. If, if you come to this place today and you're like, man, I really want to invest in people. I really want to be invested in. Come tonight. Come be a part of it. We've taught on discipleship. We've done it all day. But I don't want your excuse to be, well, I can't do it like Tim. You probably can't. I've been doing it for a long time. But there are a lot of people in this congregation that are a part of this church that have been doing it for a shorter amount of time. And they're doing it just as well as me, if not better. And we want to give the opportunity for you to see real world. What does discipleship look like personally? What does it look like to help someone else grow into the likeness of Jesus? What does it look like for me to grow more into the likeness of Jesus? So that's why we offer community groups that start this week. That's why we do this after party. That's why we have such an emphasis on discipleship. And I truly do believe that what we win people with, we keep them with. That's why Sunday last week was not an extravaganza of theme park proportions. You know what I'm talking about? But we did what we always do. We made known that Jesus is the Christ through the preaching of his word and the truth of the resurrection. Larry McNally is one of our, uh, he's been serving in this church, he's been serving Jesus in this church for decades. And he's been faithful to serve the Lord here. 
and he came up to me after the service to share his takeaway last week, which was not only affirming, but it was prophetic. And in my mind for this church, it was prophetic on what this church is and where this church is going. Here was his takeaway. My takeaway was that this Sunday was like every Sunday here at COV, which is a very good thing. Praise God that we are consistent. And I hope that we are found to be faithful to making known that Jesus is the Christ, but the Lord knows our motives. And it may not be the best way. What we're doing on a Sunday may not be the best way to gather as many people as possible, but it seems to be obedient into what Jesus told his disciples to do as he built his church. And that's what we do here, church. We make known that he is the Christ. Verse 5. For even his own brothers, John says, did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. This is not they didn't believe he ever existed. Okay, like he was like right there. They knew he existed. But they were, you ready? They were too close. They were too prideful. They were too sure of their worldview to want God to intervene and to change stuff. To be the one that the scriptures testified about, they could not in their pride believe that it was their brother. Not because Jesus wasn't anything but perfect, but because the brothers were too spiritually blind and dead to see him for what and who he really is. Uh, Some bad news. That's been each of us in this room. Each of us at one point did not have spiritual eyes to see. We did not live spiritually alive lives until God intervened. That's why we worship him and not us. In fact, Paul, the apostle, says in Ephesians chapter 2, as he was writing the church in Ephesus, he says, as for you, that means you and me, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What can you do when you're dead? in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and hear this this term, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Not the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the air. Could it be Satan? Yes. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, okay, all in Greek, Mike, check me on this, all means all, thank you. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I don't know if it's harsher in any other passage. We all are dead. But there's two words at the beginning of the extra spiritual version of the Bible, ESV. Let that sit in. The two words in verse 4. But God. Oh, that's some good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, what can we do? Nothing. In our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. Getting what you do not deserve, you have been saved. See, the bad news is that each of us were dead. The good news is, but God. That deserves an amen. Holy Yeah, thank you. Amen. All right. You're not in control. (laughs) God decided in his incomparable measures of his grace to give you the eyes to see. God decided in his grace to help you know that Jesus is the Christ. 
If you have repented, if you've believed unto him, he gifts you the Holy Spirit. The third person of our triune God who does not reside in a temple built by hands, but he resides in men and women redeemed by God. That is some good news. So may I just ask you, can I just be real? And will you be real with me? Has the closeness to God through either growing up in the church or having Christian family members left you lukewarm and hardened to the truth of the gospel? Have you taken for granted the truth of the gospel because it's always been there, but you've never really embraced it yourself? You've never really received what Christ has done for you. Verse six, therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. That is a crazy diss, by the way. But it starts with this word that I love in the Bible, therefore. One of my favorite words in the Bible because it always points to context. What is the therefore? Therefore is what I think every time I see this word. And since the brothers did not believe in him, Jesus responds with, my time has not yet come for you. Any time will do. Hear me. There is an order. There is a timing. There is a way God in his sovereignty was going to allow Jesus' sacrifice to take place. But we don't get to dictate that. There are prayers that we have that we pray to God and we expect God to show up like a genie in a bottle, but we don't get to tell him what to do. And God's timing, even though not always easy, is always perfect. What about when you're praying for that person you love that's sick? What if God doesn't heal them? How can we actually believe that his timing's perfect? because he knows the greater picture. He can see much farther out than you can. And he knows what he's going to do in his perfect and pleasing will. But this conversation, it actually reminds me of John chapter two. We did that one in March of 2018. Jesus is at this wedding in Cana. He's with his family and his mom is helping out. She's, she's a crazy, essentially deacon, and she's serving in a bunch of different ways at the wedding and they've ran out of wine. And Jesus retorted after she had come to him and asked for his help. And he retorted with, my time has not yet come. And yet he provided a miracle anyway by turning water into wine. What Jesus is communicating here though, as he's having this conversation with his brothers, is that he is not gonna go to Judea in a public way. And his goal was not to have, you ready? The world love him. Oh, this passage is too theological for some of us. His goal was not to have the world love him because he is not of this world. And any time that we want the world to love us and we want to fast forward things, we're missing out on what God's doing. We're missing out on God's perfect timing. We're so quick to condemn God when he's not showing up when we want him to. But we don't see the bigger picture. We don't see what he is doing in his timing. There's another thing I want you to notice in this verse, of this passage, really. The fact that the legalistic religious folk hated him is a very affirming proof that Jesus is not a religious leader in the way that we see religion, but he was a relational savior and Lord who saves those 
who do not attempt to earn his approval through their actions, but bow a knee because of their understood dependency. So many of us make things about us. We come at God and we act as if God's lucky to have us. And we tell the bloody Jesus, this is what I've done for you. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I, here's an important word, testify that his works, that his works, that its works, the world's works are evil. Jesus is making a really harsh statement here to his very own brothers that the world cannot hate you, brothers, because you're a product of this world. You follow the ways of this world. You are ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But the world hates Jesus, not because of his grace, but because of his words. Because his words expose people's lack of dependency upon God. So what does he say? He testifies that the world's works are evil. And I think the misunderstanding of this world, I feel like I've already given you too much. I think the misunderstanding of this world is this, that we think people are inherently good. I guarantee that many of us still believe this. We want to think that people are born goodish, if you will. But that is in direct conflict with what the scripture teaches. The problem of mankind isn't that we lose our way. It's that we never find the way, the truth, and the life. That's the problem. It's always funny to me when I talk to someone of another faith who really likes Jesus. Has this ever happened to you? They're like Muslim or they're something. They're like, oh, I really like Jesus. They obviously don't know what Jesus says about himself or about them. His words are harsh towards people that want to try to work themselves into the kingdom rather than bow a knee. Verse 8, Jesus says, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. You guys can go to the festival, brothers. You are of this world, but there is a plan. There is a time. There is a place. And the way that I will eventually fulfill all that the Father has commanded me to do, I'm going to listen to him, not you. Verse 9, after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, verse 10, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Sneaky Jesus. Verse 11, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus, <laughs> asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Jesus is spoken of everywhere. Even to this day, he is spoken of. And these crowds whispered and talked not just behind Jesus' back, but what other people were listening to. They were talking behind other people's back as well because they didn't want people to know their opinion of Jesus. See, God doesn't care about popular opinion. Jesus doesn't have a popularity poll being taken of him like a politician. We don't get to vote on him as king. We either receive or reject his lordship, and we have seen through history that people think as long as they have a little bit of Jesus, they are covering the bases of their sins. Listen, a little bit of Jesus is literally worth nothing. Calling Jesus a good man is not worship. Treating Jesus like your homeboy is not what redeemed people do. So toss that shirt. There it is. 
a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. You can crown him as king, you can worship at his feet, or you can spit in his face and crucify him with your sins and your unbelief, but you cannot look at Jesus of the Bible and pat him on the head and say he's a nice guy. To treat Jesus as anything but Lord and Master is to misunderstand him completely. Verse 13. But no one would say anything publicly about him for the fear of the leaders. John has this commentary on the controlling nature and even how scary the spiritual leaders were in this time. No one wanted to make a public stance for Jesus in the fear that they would be persecuted. Does this sound familiar at all? Maybe to us today? And I don't think any of us are worried about necessarily being beheaded, but we're worried that people won't like us. We're worried that people won't want to talk to us if we represent Jesus. And we live in a time and period where Jesus is liked and tolerated more than worshiped and revered. Did you know that? So what are you and I going to do about it, Christians, little Christ? those who have been adopted into the kingdom of God. I do want to end with a bit of this good ending, at least for the brothers who come, these brothers who were unbelieving, obstinate naysayers against Jesus. Here's what it says, Acts chapter 1. Acts is the next book after John. Acts 1 is right after the end of John. Acts is after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's shown himself to a bunch of people. He's about to ascend to heaven. He just has ascended to heaven earlier on in this chapter. And now all the disciples and and people are waiting for him. And here's what it says in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present with Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The brothers ultimately worshiped Jesus as Lord because Easter stuck. And his church was built, and those who are part of the church confess and live as though Jesus is the Christ. Not perfectly, but pursuing him. So my question is, are you one of them today? Are you someone that confesses that Jesus is the Christ? Are you someone that lives as if that's true? If you're not, I'd invite you to repent. I'd invite you to trust Jesus as your Lord, as your King, and to receive the gift of the adoption into his family and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides in you when you trust Christ. See, we don't know that you're part of God's family because you prayed a prayer or walked down an aisle or you just attend church often. We know who attends often because we did the sense of, I'm just kidding. We and even you know that you've been adopted by the king when you hate your sin and you love the son. We know when you start to grow to look more like Jesus and others can tell. We know because your priorities have changed. We know because the sin you once loved and the righteousness you once hated switched. So I pray that you would let go and let God lead you today. 
And I pray for those of us who have trusted him that we would put into practice the words that are coming out of his word. Worship team, you guys can come on up.